week six of our series, Science or God. Science or God. And that really is uh, the challenge for many people. Some of us have crossed that threshold. Our faith and confidence in God is deeply rooted. But there are other people that really struggle. There are people maybe in this room, you're seekers, or you've got questions about science and how does God relate to that, and you've taught, been taught one thing in school. or yeah. I mean, it, our culture and our world today has a completely different set of values than what many of us hold as Christ followers today. I remember a couple weeks ago, I was walking my dog, and, and as I went out the door, I turned and I was facing east towards the ocean, and I saw a picture that looks something like this. You guys, just bring the house light down so you can kind of get the full effect of it. But I, I saw something like this. The moon was full, and the stars shone so bright in the sky. And at that moment, I mean, I just like, wow. Well, the God that I serve, my Father, he made that. I mean, I just had that sense of awesomeness, that sense of awe about my God. And I remember even back all the way back to I was a little tiny boy, and I would sit out in the front yard with my sisters, and we would lay in the grass, and we'd look up to the skies. We would try to count the stars, and you know that's impossible. I didn't understand anything about the solar system. I didn't understand anything about how the stars or the planets all hung in space, but I knew that there was a creator. Couldn't maybe necessarily explain it, but I knew there had to be someone behind all of this. And we look at the moon and we look at the planets, the, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. There's this sense of awe, there's a sense of majesty today. And, and as we talk about this area today, science or God, what we want to dispel is we want to dispel that they are actually in conflict today. Abraham Lincoln once said, I can see it how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist. But I cannot conceive how he can look up into the heavens and say there is no God. I'm not a scientist today. I've actually brought another individual along to do the heavy lifting in the area of academics and science. And he's going to talk to us about that today. But, but what I do want to talk to us just for a moment here is to lay this foundation, this conflict between supposed conflict between faith and fact. Faith in fact, in our schools today, evolutionary thought, Darwinian evolutionary thought is really the foundation of all modern science today, and it does seem to present a conflict. And if you grew up in the church, like I grew up in the church, there were always discussions and people had different opinions and, and talking about how God created and how does evolution fit into that and if evolution is really real or not real. And I want you to look at two passages of Scripture with me. Two passages of Scripture. The first one is found in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles, you have your phones, however you choose to do that today, however you choose to read the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to read one verse. Then I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 15 through 17. And as we do here at City Church, we stand in the honor of reading God's word. So will you stand with me as we read the word of God this morning? Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1, and the Bible says, in the beginning, God. Let's just stop right there. Everyone just say that with me. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the New Testament, I want you to look at one passage written by Paul to the church at Colossae. They had lots of opinions about, they had lots of opinions about metaphysical issues, about angels and all kinds of things, who Christ really was. And Paul lays out for us who Jesus really is. And in verse number 15, Paul states, the Son. Jesus is the image, the exact representation of the invisible God, the firstborn, the first begotten, the first in priority over all creation. For in him all, everyone say all, 
all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all. Everyone say all. All, all things are held together. Science or God? Why science and God are not in conflict. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Will you join with me as I pray? Father, uh, what an awesome time of worship we've already experienced. The reality, we know that in the beginning you created. We know that you're the creator God, but you're not only a creator God, you're a loving God, a forgiving God, a God who holds all things together through your son. We thank you, Lord, for that, that reality that we have in our spirit and our heart today. But God, I pray that you will speak not just to our hearts, but you will speak to our intellects, that our minds will be strengthened and challenged as we put our hope in a God who is real. We thank you for your majesty and your greatness and your glory. And I pray that you'll become more real to us after the, after the end of this service. I ask us in Jesus' wonderful and mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. In the Bible, God never sets out to prove himself. God is God, as the old timers just say, all by himself. God is self-evidence. God is self-existent. God has always been. The New Testament, New Testament writers would say he's the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. The first four words of the Bible simply declare that there is God. The Bible, as a matter of fact, never sets out to prove the reality of God. Someone once said that man trying to study God and figure out the cosmos and how this all works is kind of like it's kind of like us looking up towards heaven. It's kind of like an ant looking up towards a human and figuring out what that thing's all about. I mean, God in his glory and his grandeur and his majesty and his might to think that this universe that we exist in today, that there was a creator, a designer. Even your very, the very nature itself, the Bible says, declares that there is this God. As we study the origins of mankind, as we look at the, the history of mankind, you will see from ancient civilizations past to this present day. I mean, you go all the way back to the very first human writings almost 5,000 years ago, the Babylonians. They were, they were astronomers. They, they studied the skies. They, they tried to figure out how the planets work and the, and the solar systems work. And the Greek philosophers and the Egyptians, the Indian, the Chinese, the Mayan, the Incans, the Arabs, uh, uh, all mankind throughout human history has, has tried to figure out this thing how did this happen they've looked into the skies many times the challenges become as they look into the skies they begin to to worship the the skies they begin to worship the things that, that the skies represented. And, and as you look at human history, you will see that their understanding of science, their understanding of the cosmos was intricately wrapped into their theology, was intricately wrapped into who, what they believed about the gods of the deities. And so we fast forward today to 2017, and we tried to reconcile this worldview, this scientific, atheistic, evolutionary worldview with the, with the view of God, God being the creator. And there seems to be this conflict. Now, there are three primary views today that people hold of origins. There's three primary views. The, the first one is the atheistic evolutionary model. It's, it's the one that is commonly taught in our universities. It's the one that most of you went to a public school. You, you heard this teaching that there was this guy named Darwin, and in the 1850s, he wrote a book called The Origin of Species. And from there, the whole scientific world began to change. Now, it didn't change overnight. As a matter of fact, the scientific world really didn't adopt this evolutionary atheist 
atheistic view of creation until the 1920s. In the 1920s, there was a famous trial called the Scopes Trial, and the Scopes Trial, the Snopes Trial, and the Snopes Trial was was this teacher that that was teaching evolutionary theory, but it was against the law in his home state. There was a famous attorney, politician, preacher, pundit. His name was William J. Bridey. And he had run for the president of the United States, and uh, he was a very influential, and he represented the creation side, and he, and he went into the courtroom, and he won. He won. He won in the courtroom, but he lost in the, in the view of public opinion and, and the modern intelligent or the intelligence community of that generation. Fast forward from a 1920s perspective of America where creationism was the predominant thought and worldview that was taught in our educational systems to the 1950s where there was not one academic society, there wasn't one academic culture, university, biology department, uh, physiology department, physics department. There was not one that actually taught creation identification or the beginning of, of creation through God. All of them had bought into this primary worldview. And so there is this, this model that has been adapted by our culture, not just in America, but around the world. Uh, the, second, the second primary uh, worldview that's taught is called intelligent design, the intelligent design community. Now, well, the thing about the evolutionary model, in order for that to work, it teaches that the universe is about 14 billion years old, and the planet Earth as we know it is about five billion years old, and so this process of evolution has been taking place for billions and billions of years. The intelligent design model also believes in some sort of evolutionary model. They don't reject that the world is billions of years of age, but they do believe that there was a creator. They believe there was someone behind this. They, they, even if they don't espouse the revelation that we understand of God, that he's revealed himself through Jesus, they believe that there was a creator. They're theistic. They, they might be deistic, which means they believe in a God, but he's not actually working in mankind, mankind's world today, but they believe that there was a creator behind it. And then there's what we call the young earth creationists. There are people in, the, in, in our culture, in our circles, in our world that believe that God created the world. In little six days. And in a six-day period, God, you can read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. They, take, they, they read the Bible from a literal perspective, and they believe the world may be 10,000 years of age. But mankind, as we know it, is about 6,000 years. Here's the problematic issue. Here's, here's the potential conflict that's built in these models. The first one is the area of astronomy. How is the world eternal or is the world continuing to expand? In the area of geology, how old is the earth? How old is the earth? And in the area of biology, did we evolve from a lower source of life? Did we come from something else? This, this concept or this understanding of natural selection that produces an evolutionary model. And so this is the conflict that's taking place. And, and when you look at the history of the church, you'll see that the church hasn't always done very well. As a matter of fact, you can go throughout history for much of the Christian history. The, the areas of science were relegated to a corner, very limited in people's ability to study. But around the 1400s, things begin to shift and change. And men like Copernicus, who, who begin to study and begin to realize that the, the solar system, the, the way that this all worked was completely different than what people thought. At that time, people thought the world was flat and that the earth, was, that everything revolved around the earth. But he began to realize that the earth didn't, uh, that the sun didn't revolve around the earth, but that the earth revolved around the sun. And then a man by the name of Galileo, who was a mathematician, a physicist, and a, an astronomer, he came along and he understood, he had a greater perception and understanding. And each of these people, because of their views that they espoused, 
Although they were devout Christians and God followers, they, they experienced great persecution by the church. And by the 1600s, a man by the name of Sir Isaac Newton came along, and he's considered one of the greatest scientists of the modern era. He's most famous for his formulation of the laws of gravity. But the, what people don't really know about this guy is he actually spent more time studying the scriptures than he did science, mathematics, and astronomy. He was a brilliant theologian. He wrote millions of words in the areas of theology. And then around the mid-1800s, a man came along by the name of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin wrote a book called The Origins of the Species, and he would change the way that scientists viewed the origins of mankind, the origins of the earth for all time. It's a fascinating book. If you had a chance to take a look at it, so much of the way we view the world is, and our scientific model today has been shaped by this man. But he had two primary thoughts. Number one, that animals evolved from one or, or, or several common ancestors. And the mechanism by which evolution takes place is natural selection over a long period of time. What happened actually in Darwin's personal life is that when he was around 40 years of age, he had a favorite niece. He, he was a church man. He attended his local church. From the time he was in his early 20s, he, he had wrestled with the inspiration of Scripture. He had a hard time believing that the Gospels were really real and some of the Old Testament stories. He couldn't see them to be true stories. And he went to church every week. He tithed. He was a tither. He supported his local church and his community. He was a church man. But in his 40s, his 9-year-old niece died. And in that process, he couldn't explain how a good, benevolent, loving father could allow evil into the world. And from that, from that moment, he began to be, become more and more, uh, uh, had a greater sense that there could not really be a God. Because if there really was a God, he would not allow this happen. And so he began to move from theism to more of an agnostic worldview. He never called himself an atheist, but this man began to shake the world. His, his views began to shape the world until where we are today. And here's the problem. Here's the problem that you and I live in today. The problem is that there is this conflict, and this conflict is because there are preconceived ideas, biases, and presuppositions that people hold on to. If you are in uh, the scientific model, if you accept evolutionary theory of Darwinism as being fact, you, you immediately reject any other concept or idea that would contradict that. If you believe that God was a creator and you believe that God is a source of life and you believe the revelation of God through scriptures, immediately when you step into that arena, you are discounted. You're not intellectual enough. You're not smart enough. And you can Google all this on the Internet and you can see all kinds of debates between very brilliant minds, far brighter than mine. But you can see this conflict that's taking place. And the problem is when people bring their preconceived ideas and biases is they start talking at each other. They start talking at each other rather than ta talking to one another. Which leads to my next point, contradictory relationships between faith and fact. And this is really the issue. We are people of faith. Our presupposition, our belief system is founded that there is a God. The evolutionary atheistic worldview doesn't believe that there is a God. And if there is a God, he's unprovable because you can't put God in a test tube because you can't study and prove that there is a God. There, there's no way that there could be a God. Now, not everyone in the atheistic worldview would say it like that, but this is what I want you to hear today. The Bible was not written to be a science book, but in matters of science, the Bible is not in contradiction to science. Stephen Hawking, who is a famous English theoretical physicist, he said it like this. Science may solve the problem of how the universe began, but it cannot answer the question why. Why 
does the universe bother to exist? Why does the universe bother to exist? Michael Thompson uh, is going to come and talk to us why the universe bothers to exist. Let's give Michael a great big hand. Well, thank you, church. It's exciting to be here. Um, you may recognize me. I'm typically the one that waves you guys in at the parking lot. And I must say it's much cooler in this area than it is out there. So thank you for that. Now, my wife and I have actually been coming to City Church for about three years. We, moved, we started coming here shortly after we moved to Florida, and it's really felt like a home. So it's such an honor to be here to talk to you guys, especially about God and science. You know, this is one of my favorite subjects, and I was thinking about it the other day. I rank it up there pretty high. You know, I like physics, differential equations, and Batman. Those are like the things that I know about, so I'm like right on it. And when I talk about this topic with other people, I begin to notice a trend. You know, when you mention God and science in the same sentence, people tend to get nervous. They get a little hesitant, and that's because they have this idea that God and science don't mix, that science is the enemy. And that's, that's not true. If we look into it and if we investigate it, we can see that science and God are trying to tell us the same story. Science and the Bible are trying to work together. You know, science at its very core is trying to figure out the how. It wants to tell you, it wants to explain the cause of everything. As a scientist, we want to know the answer. It bothers us if we can't explain it. And some of the things we know as Christians we can't do. So it's not surprising as, uh, you know, to understand that science wants to be able to explain how the universe began. They want to show you how life started. Now, as Christians, we know what those answers are. We find it in the book. There's a simple truth to that. We know God, but science is a younger language. It's a newer story, and it's trying to explain it, and it's stubborn. You know, it's a lot like trying to put a puzzle together without the box top. You know, as Christians, we have the box top of life. We know that God's involved. Now, we may not know why the pieces go where they go, but we have the idea of what it ultimately looks like. Science, on the other hand, does not have this box top. They don't want it. And so they're trying to put the puzzle together and put the pieces together without looking at the grand picture. You can do that. It's going to be a lot harder, and it's gonna take, you're going to make mistakes. And we've seen that in science. There's been a lot of advancements, a lot of different ideas, and they've come up with some crazy theories. But as they get deeper, as our technology gets better, their ideas are lining more up with the picture box that we have as Christians. So let's look at the first mystery, how the universe was created. So I think a lot of us like to think about this question, at least I know I do. I mean, now I'm a huge nerd, so it's okay. I think about a lot of different things. So, but I like to know how God did something. Science has spent a lot of time on this. They spent a lot of money. And if they try to break things down into two very different camps, the first one is that the earth was eternal meaning it was always there, it's always ongoing, it was and it is. The second one is that there was a beginning. This kind of lines up more with us as Christians because we know what it says in Genesis, we know. Now, how many people here have heard of the Big Bang Theory? Very popular theory. It's one of many. There's the multi-universe theory, the cosmic rebound theory, blah, 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 blah. We can keep going and going. But the Big Bang Theory is where science has kind of gravitated to. And for those of you who don't know, the Big Bang Theory is basically a creation that started from a singular explosion in the cosmos. Everything came together, and then bang, creation started. Now, 
In the Bible, it tells us in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. I told you, science is trying to explain the how of Genesis. And so the Big Bang Theory is how science wants to explain Genesis. And if we really look down into all the different facts, all the different information there, not only are we going to see that it proves the Bible or gives more substance to the Bible, but you can see God's fingerprints all over this theory. In order for us to do that, we're going to look at um, the word surge, S-U-R-G-E. Each of these letters represents five different ideas or five different facts about the Big Bang Theory and why it proves that there is the universe had a beginning and two, that the direction of this points to God rather than nature. So let's start with the first one, S, second law of thermodynamics. Now I said I'm a nerd, so when I see this word right here, I'm already pumped, I'm already hooked in, I'm ready to go. And I can understand maybe you guys aren't there yet, it's okay, but what we know about the second law, or about thermodynamics in general, it's the study of matter and energy in a system. So the universe is a system, and from the study of thermodynamics, we also know that each system has a finite amount of energy, or a set amount. Now, let's think of this, you're about to go on a road trip, and you're getting everything packed, getting everything good to go, you're getting in your car, and you fill it up with gas. So the car is your system, and the energy is the gas. You can only put a finite amount of gas in your car at one time. And as you're driving, you're using energy. You're using that gas. And as you keep going, you're eventually going to run out. So the universe has stopped at the gas station and got filled up, and now it's on this road trip with no gas station in sight, and it's losing energy. Now, why is this important? Why do we care? Well, if that means we're losing energy... There had to be some point in there that it had a lot of energy. It had to be completely full. If your car is losing gas at some point, you had to fill it up. Now, again, as Christians, we know who filled the universe up with energy. We know it had a beginning. And science is slowly getting there, but it doesn't have that piece yet. It hasn't found out who actually filled the universe with energy. They just now know that it had a beginning. So they're slowly getting there. U. U stands for the universe expanding. So I don't know if you know this, but as of right now, the universe is growing. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, it's not just expanding into space. It's expanding into nothing. It's actually creating space as it goes. So God's miracle is still working right now. It's like if you were drawing a line on a piece of paper and you come to the end. But instead of stopping, you keep going. And now you're not only drawing the line, but you're creating more paper to draw on. That's pretty wild if you think about it. Now, science was able to find this out of a buddy named Edwin Hubble. Now, that name may sound familiar to you. You probably have heard of his telescope, the Hubble telescope. It's a big thing. Um, A lot of astronomers like to go there. And he actually sat down one night and looked through and actually saw things in space traveling faster away from Earth than they were closer, thus proving that the universe had a beginning. Because if you look at it, if we were able to rewind it, you would see from the expansion that it all comes back to a single point. It's almost as if someone spoke something into existence and started this chain reaction and this explosion and creation just started. Now let's go to R, radiation. Now I know radiation gets a bad rap, I understand that, but it's also a type of energy. How many people like action films here? Perfect, love it. Now, you notice there's a lot of explosions in there and sometimes you see the mushroom cloud and basically in those explosions, They release types of energy, and radiation, heat, those are all types of energy. 
So if the Big Bang Theory happens, scientists theorize that we should be able to see the radiation or the energy transferred from that explosion. So in 1965, two scientists were out trying to figure that out, and they actually discovered this radiation. Now, this is a big deal. I know this is kind of the boring part of the talk, and I apologize for that, but we've got to get through this. And what they discovered is not only does the big theory happen, but again, somebody had to snap their, speak it into existence to allow this explosion, to allow it to keep going, to create where we live as home. And this radiation here is proof that there was an explosion, there was a beginning. Now, G, the great galaxy seeds. I hate talking about this one because everybody looks over my head like I have no idea what I'm talking about, but we're gonna get through this together. So I want you all to think of a garden. When you are working in the garden, you're, you're trying to get things to grow. In order to get things to grow, you have to plant seeds. This is exactly what this is. They're seeds for galaxies. And I know that sounds kind of crazy. But when the Big Bang Theory was theorized, again, scientists needed a way to prove it. They needed a way to fit the pieces in here without the box top. So they sent out a satellite called COBE, C-O-B-E, to get pictures of these. And what they found are these areas or slight variation in temperature, however you really want to define it, And it left them baffled because, you see, these areas in space, they're still there, help the universe expand. They're areas that allow all the matter, all the energy needed to create galaxies come together and keep going. That's why the universe is still expanding, because there's somebody up there that we know that's treating the universe as a garden and is planting seeds for different galaxies and taking care of it. Scientists are not able to explain this because they don't have this top. They don't know what to do with it. It just leaves them to make, it leaves them to name it God's fingerprint in space. And E stands for Einstein's theory of general relativity. Now, I'm a physicist, so Einstein's kind of a big deal to me. It kind of goes my wife and Einstein sometimes. I like to move it around as long as she's not here. But typically, it's always Lauren and then Albert Einstein. And he was one of those guys that believed that the earth was eternal. He thought it didn't have a beginning, didn't have an end. It was just ever going. So he wanted to prove that. He wanted to start getting an equation. So he starts working on this, and as he goes on, he realizes that his math is not pointing to an eternal earth. It's pointing to a place that has a beginning. And that really bothered him. He struggled with this. And he actually introduced a number, his fudge factor is what he called it, so he could get the right answer that he wanted. And that was fine for a little bit, but then there's other scientists, and this is what happens in science. More people come in, and they want to help with the puzzle, and they realize that they made a mistake. His fudge factor was not right, and they adjusted it, and he went to the Hubble telescope, and he looked, and he saw the universe was expanding, and he called it his greatest blunder, because the theory of relativity helps us prove the S, the U, the R, the G. It's all because of this. You know, the Big Bang Theory is the best that science has to offer to prove the existence of the universe. But you see, it doesn't disprove the Bible. It doesn't discredit Genesis. It actually helps supports what we know. They want to explain the how of Genesis. And this is a trend as the development comes in science. They actually support toward God rather than away. Now let's go to the next one. How was life created? We talked about this in the beginning as well. This is a question I think a lot of us go through. Is it, was it random? Was there intelligent design? Some of us think of evolution, intelligent design, what happened? How can we explain it? Well, as Christians, again, we know the answer. We have the box top, but scientists don't, so there's been a lot of different theories that are thrown out there. Now, I understand in this one, a lot of people feel that science is kind of pushing back on God, and that is one theory. 
But science has also come up with other theories that match our box top as advancements get better. So before we go any further, I have a couple pictures because we need to know as a group how to explain what is nature and what is intelligent design. So I have two pictures up here. Both are found in the United States. One is of the Grand Canyon and one is of Mount Rushmore. So you can take your time. You can tell me which one's nature and which one's intelligent design. <laughs> Perfect. So as you can tell, the Grand Canyon was made by nature. We know this because we have seen nature create other canyons. We have seen them create holes. I've never seen nature go up to a mountain, manipulate it, and come up with four faces on it. I have seen artists do that. I've seen sculptors. I've seen someone with the mind be able to do that, but I've never seen nature do it. Now, I have another picture. This one's a lot harder, so really think on this one. I have a rock and a watch. Now, again, we've seen nature create rocks. I've never seen nature create a Rolex. And if you really want to get into it, we could open that watch up and really see what's inside. And you can see a system in there that takes time, that takes patience, attention to detail to make that. You know who else spends time and pays attention to detail? Our Heavenly Father. Amen. He's the watchmaker of our universe. He's the designer of our life. You know, I'm going to nerd out here a little bit, and I want to talk about the engineering of the world real quick, if you'll let me. There's these things called the anthropodic principles. They're basically constants out there that, that kind of show that the earth was made for human existence. And there's a lot of these, but let's just, I want to just talk about a couple of them. One, the percentage of oxygen in the universe is at 21%, and that's important. Because if it was, let's say, 25%, there would be fires breaking out all over the place. That would be a huge heat advisory, especially in Florida. Now, if it was less, like at 15%, we would all suffocate. Again, there's other ones. The earth is designed to go around or rotate in 24 hours. If it was greater than that or less, there would be such a difference in temperature between night and day, we would not be able to survive. Again, there's several of these. There's actually 122 anthropologic principles. Now, that, some scientists, a lot, guy a lot smarter than I did, actually came through, did the math, and there's a bunch of planets in our universe, and he tried to figure out what the probability was for one planet to have all these 122 constants. And he came up with a number, one out of over 10 to the 138th power. That's a big number. Let me write it another way. Let me show it to you so you can get it. It's one out of 10 to 138 zeros behind that. I don't need a calculator to tell you that's basically zero. There's basically no chance of that happening, but that's what God did to our home. And if he's that concerned about our home, what it makes, how concerned would he be about you? He made you out of his own image. So in order to look a little deeper in that, let's talk about DNA. So in 1953, two scientists came up with DNA. Now I'm a physicist, I'm not a chemistry expert, so I'm going to kind of get through this. Now, DNA is basically a helix structure, as you can see on the screen, and it has four uh, nitrogen bases. Now, I'm not going to say those because I'm not a good speller and I can't pronounce any of those, so we're just going to call them A, T, C, and G. Now, this is the alphabet of DNA. In our English language, we have 26 letters. DNA has four. And when they write your DNA code, it is, it's in a very particular order. It would separate me from you and you from your neighbor. So the order of these, the space of these is very, very important. So the question is, is this intelligent design or is this random? Well, let's take it a step further. Let's look at one of the simplest creatures on our planet, the one-cell amoeba. 
Now, these things are so small, we could line up a thousand of them in an inch. Now, if you would let me, if we could take the time and I could pull the DNA out of that amoeba and I wrote it down on pieces of paper and I wrote all the code of the DNA, I could fill up over a thousand sets of encyclopedias. So the question is, does nature write books or is there an author to life? That's what we need to ask. And we could take it a step further. There are proteins that need to be formed in order to create DNA. Now, what it was designed in a non-chemical, if in order to just come up with this, a scientist figured out that to create one protein, it would be the same as a blind man trying to find one marked grain of sand in the Sierra Desert, not once, not twice, but three times. Again, that's almost zero, basically zero, meaning there had to be intelligent design behind it. I mean, you can just look at the cell and see that everything is interdependent. Your body, the way you were made up, everything has to work precise. It didn't come together piece by piece. It came together as a whole. And we know this through our scientific research. You know, I have a math equation that I'd like to show you guys. A plus B equals C. This is a pretty simple equation. I think everybody can get this. We know this. It's a simple truth. We can handle this. I'd like to show you another equation. Now, this one may be a little more intimidating, might scare you guys a little bit, but again, it's a simple equation. In fact, you need to know how to do the first one before you can tackle this one. And that's the same thing with God and science. You know, science is intimidating to us. It's complex. It has fancy equations. It has long definitions. And it has all these theories. But all these theories rely on one simple truth, that there was a beginning and that somebody is behind it all. You see, science likes to focus on the how. To them, seeing is believing. As Christians, we focus on the why. It's the difference between fact and faith. So to answer your question, is it God or science? It's God and science. Two very different languages telling the exact same story. Hey, thank you, church. I really appreciate it. Amen. So what does this mean to us today? What does it mean to us today? The study of science should strengthen our, should strengthen our witness. The study of science should strengthen our witness. The Bible tells us that we are to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And as we look at creation and as we look at the scientific theories that are postulated, and you know that men are always changing. They're, they're always changing. But the God that we worship is a God that never changes. And so as we look at these theories, we, we understand that there, there had to be a designer. There had to be a God who was behind this. And that very first verse that I read in Colossians, it declared that Christ in him, he was before all and in all, and he holds all together. The revelation that we have of God is Jesus. You can't put Jesus in a test tube, but what you can do is you can show him the power of the changed life. The power of your life that's been changed. The witness that you have, the hope that you have that lies within you. The second thing that the study of science should do is that it should be used to make our world a better place. 
You see, the why of science is that God has created us with a purpose. We are not here by random chance. We're not here by accident. We're not just some amoeba that popped up out of the ground over billions and billions of years. No, God created man in his very own image. And every person, every person in this room has value. Red, yellow, black, white, rich man, poor man, little man, tall man, skinny man, fat man. Every person has value. Paul the Apostle said to this, we are God's handiwork. We are God's masterpiece. We're God's creation created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Our study of science should lead us to a place and a desire to want to make our world a better place. And then lastly, the study of science should lead us to a deeper place of worship. And the grandeur, the glory, and the beauty, and the awe of our God. The awe of our God. I think I have a picture there of a sun. Could you put that picture up on the screen? The brilliance and the beauty of the sun. This one tiny sun in our, gal in our universe, in our galaxies. There's billions and trillions. God created. God created all. God created all to show us the splendor and the glory and the greatness of who he is. That God that created the stars and the moon and the sun and they hang there in place, at least it looks to us that way, is the God that we worship today. It's the God that's changed my life. It's the God that's changed your life. And the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. And night after night they make him known. God's made himself known to us today. We're going to close our service in a time of worship. If you've never met this God, if you've never encountered this God of creation, today is your day. Today is your day. Today the day, this is the day that God's made for you to know him in a personal and intimate way. This God who made all, he made it for us so that we could bring glory to him. I want you to close your eyes. You're in this room today and God's spoken to you in this simple little message. We're not here to combat people. We're here to lead people, to point them to the one who created it all, the one who holds it all together. His name is Jesus. And you're here today, and you know your life is not right with him. God's been speaking to you today in this room. You say, you know what? I'm ready to give my life to God. I'm ready to surrender to the one who's made it all. If that's you, when I count to three, I want you to raise your hand. One, two, three. Come on, in this room right now. I see that hand. Amen. Come on. I see that hand back there. Amen. Anyone else? Come on, church. I see that hand back there. I see that hand over there. Amen. Man. I just want everyone in this room to say, Lord Jesus. Come on, say with it. Lord Jesus, we give our lives to you, the one who made it all. We admit that we need you today. We believe you died on the cross and you rose from the dead so that I could have life and a relationship with you. Come into my heart. Forgive me today and help me serve you the best that I know how the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.